Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, the football season is over. It all came to an end, except for, of course, the Pro Bowl, which really doesn't count because it's a bunch of rich guys going to play football over in Hawaii. I mean, that doesn't really count as football. Um, Just out of curiosity, did you know um, that the Super Bowl had over 98 million viewers last Sunday afternoon? It was like the largest in history, largest viewing audience in history. 98 and a half million people, they say, watched the Super Bowl. Out of curiosity, how many here watched the Super Bowl last Sunday? See, you made history. Very good. Okay. How, how, those of you who watched, how many watched it for the game? How many watched it for the commercials? Yeah, about half. <laughs> um, I didn't dare ask this last week, but let me just ask it this morning. How many were rooting for the Cardinals? Yeah? yeah? Okay. How many for the Steelers? Yeah. yeah. There's a few. Okay, here's a really big question. Santonio Holmes, two feet inbounds yeah. or one yeah. foot inbounds? Two feet? Yeah. One feet. One foot. Yeah, see, you're, you're the diehard Raider fans. You are still bitter over 1972. Yes. You have never gotten over Franco Harris and the, the uh, immaculate reception. Now, I got to admit... I'm a Niner fan, okay? So I was kind of rooting for the Cardinals too because the Steelers were the first ones to win six championships and I was hoping it was going to be the Niners and that's not going to happen for a long time. So, um, but so like it or not, you know, at least for the next 12 months, they have bragging rights. The Pittsburgh Steelers are the world champions. Yes. They defeated all of their rivals. They won the big game. By definition, they are the champions. But there's a different type of champion. If you look, actually, in the dictionary, there is a secondary definition of champion that goes more like this. One who supports, advocates, or fights on behalf of another person. That's the same word. One has to do with somebody who beat everybody up. (laughs) The other one has to do with someone who stands in defense of someone who is weaker. And it's that second definition of champion that I want to talk about this morning. Because we're in this series, um, Unsung Heroes, and we're looking at unsung heroes, looking at some of the faith lessons from from some of the lesser-known people in the Bible. Um, And and we're not probably, pretty good guess, not one of us in this room is going to ever win a Super Bowl championship ring. You know, a few of us, maybe a bowling trophy here or there, okay? But most of us are not going to be champions in the sense of the first definition. But I believe every one of us not only can be, but are called to be champions in that second definition. As Christ followers, we are called to stand in defense of, in support of, to encourage other people. In fact, the word encourage, encouragement, encourager, is over a hundred times in the New Testament. It is the essence of the Christian life, to be an encourager. And that's one of those behind-the-scenes kind of guys, behind-the-scenes kind of gals, that nobody maybe notices, but because of you, someone's life has changed. We're going to look at a model of an unsung hero, life of an encourager, the heart of a champion, and a guy by the name of Barnabas. Okay? He is like one of my favorite um, New Testament characters, and he's really not mentioned very much at all in the Bible. Only a handful of mentions, maybe four or five kind of snapshots of his life. But just from those snapshots, you get a real good idea of this guy's character and the kind of person that he was. And truthfully, without him, without him, that first century church would have been very, very different. Without him, it's a good chance 
good chance most of our New Testament would never have been written. Because even though he was a behind-the-scenes kind of guy, he influenced some very, very key people in the early stages of the church. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at his life. Um, we're going to start in Acts chapter 4. We're going to kind of jump around. So, but if you want to follow along, we're starting page 10, 1080 in the Bibles on the seat next to you, if you want to use one of those. Um, we're going to take a look at this heart of a champion, the kind of champion that you and I can and actually should become. And one of the first things you find out about Barnabas, and the first observation you make, the first encounter that we have of him, is you see his generosity. And that is a mark of an encourager. A champion is someone who gives with unselfish generosity. There is something about giving. There is something about generosity that makes encouragement flow. And there is something about people who are the encouraging kind of people. They tend to be givers. I mean, think about it in your own life. The people that have had the greatest influence, the ones who have encouraged you the most, they have typically been generous, giving types of people. It's one of the distinctives of the early church. You read the first couple chapters of Acts 2 through 4, and you see over and over again we're told how the people of the church cared for one another, that they shared what they had, um, that some sold assets and, and gave to those who were in need, that that was one of the distinctives of that first century church's their, their generosity and their caring for one another. And, and leading the way is this guy named Barnabas. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, we're told that a man named Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. And he didn't even get a bronze plaque <laughs> or a stained glass window named after him. What he got was a nickname. His real name was Joseph. He was given the nickname Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. And it stuck with him because that's the kind of guy he was. Now, truthfully, given the choice, I'd probably choose Joseph over Barnabas, but for what it represents and what it says about who he was, it's an incredibly um, powerful nickname, and it's something that stuck with him. Throughout the rest of Scripture, he is referred to as Barnabas. Now, what we know about him is he is a Levite from Cyprus, which means he is, he is Jewish, he is, he is an Israelite, he is from the tribe of Levi, but he was not born in Israel. His family comes from the island of Cyprus. And most scholars believe that, that he happened to be there on the day that the church began, on the day that the church birthed. It was during one of the Jewish feasts called Pentecost. And we're told that there were a number of Jews from all over surrounding um, areas, surrounding nations, would come to Jerusalem for the feast, for the celebration. And it's quite likely he was one of those guys. And he stays. And he gets involved. And what you find about him is that he was someone who firmly believed in his faith, he firmly believed in the mission of the church. He firmly believed in the caring and sharing and, and, and taking care of one another, of other believers. We're told that he sold a piece of property. Now, I don't know what the real estate market was like back then. You know? It might have been just as tough as it is today. But what it says about him is this was something very deliberate, that he thought about this, that he planned it out, that he actually put the property on the market and sold it. And then he took that and he brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now that is incredible generosity. Incredible generosity. And when people get generous and people start giving, encouragement flows. He sold the property, took the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Now that doesn't, that's not talking about some big ceremony and a lot of fanfare and blowing the trumpets and calling attention to it. What it simply means is he laid it at their feet 
which meant no strings attached. Here, this is yours. You take it. Do what you want with it. I have faith in what you do. I have faith in the leadership. I have faith in God. You take it. It's yours. No strings attached. That was an incredibly encouraging thing. Some of you, if you've been around Northgate for any length of time, you've already heard this story, but I don't think I've told it in probably four or five years. So if you've come in the last four or five years, you've never heard the story. It's one of those stories that's kind of the legends of Northgate. And it goes all the way back to our very, very first year in existence. Uh, We actually started this church in my living room, uh, 12 adults, five kids, um, meeting together. And um, we were meeting people in the community, inviting people, but, you know, I had friends. A few people came. You know, we probably got up to about 20 people all together. Um, but I had other friends, you know, I would invite and want them to come to my church, and they said, I'm not going to church in somebody's living room. That sounds like a cult, you know. When you get a building, you know, you let me know, I'll, be, I'll show up. So, you know, so one of the things we wanted to do was get a place that we could meet, that we could kind of go public and, and really kind of start Northgate Christian Fellowship. And we were able to get a lease on what was the old post office building, downtown Benicia. And um, so we got the lease, and part of the way that we rigged this was, uh, rigged it, part of the ways we arranged this, <laughs> there were some of us in, in that original group that had construction background, and the building needed some construction work, some dry rot, some termite work, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So what we did was we made an arrangement with the landlords. We said, we will do that work that needs to be done, and then if you, if you pay us for that work, we'll do it at bargain price. And then we took that money to, to do all of the renovations that we needed to make it a usable space to meet as a church. And so we did all that work. We probably worked on that building for six, eight months, something like that. Just every Saturday, you know, pulling weeds, um, painting, doing carpentry, putting up walls, you know, just texturing, taping, everything. It just, it seemed like it took forever. And we got to the point we were almost done. In fact, we were ready to open the doors. We had bought the carpet. We had no money left to have someone lay the carpet. Everything was ready to go. We had worked so, so hard on this. And I actually went down with the you know, pickup and got the, got the carpet, brought it back, um, brought it into the building. Everybody celebrated. We got our carpet. We got our carpet. We got nobody to, lead it, to lay it. And when I picked it up, the guy asked me, so who's going to lay the carpet for you? And I said, well, I don't know. You know. I got some carpentry background. A friend of mine's got a carpentry background. I know a guy who used to lay carpet. You know, we're going to try and you know, do this. And he said, please, don't, don't, don't ruin it. Okay? I got a guy. He's one of our regular carpet layers. He does stuff on the side. Maybe he can give you a better price than we could give you. Gave me his card. Thanks. You know, called him. Met him down Saturday afternoon, late afternoon. Met him down at the, at the building. Um, he took out his tape measure, measured the whole thing up, you know, looked it over, um, did some figuring. He turns to me and he says, okay. He said, I'll do the whole job for, I think it was $1,600. Well, that was a really good deal. Except we didn't have $1,600. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, we're... We're, we're a nonprofit. We're a church. We're just getting started. We don't have a whole lot of money. We got a lot of willing hands. How about if we kind of do a lot of the grunt work and you just do the important stuff, you know, the seams and the tucking and all that kind of stuff? You know, could you give us a little bit more of a break? Okay. So he went back and figured some more. He says, okay, I'll tell you what. Rock bottom. Bottom. I'll do it for $1,000. We didn't have $1,000 either. But I bargained him down 600 bucks. You know, what was I going to say? So I just said, you know, I said, I have to talk I have to talk to our treasurer. I'm not sure how much we have in the kitty, you know. I had a pretty good idea, but I didn't know for sure. So I said, I'll give you a call. So I, I, we had the phone that had already been installed at the place. So I called up, called the treasurer. It was probably like 5, 6 o'clock in the evening. And I called and I said, you know, how much do we have in our fund? Nothing. Uh, I said, well, okay, how, what's our giving pattern? How long will it take us to save up $1,000? You know, and it was going to take like at least another month or two. And I was just, I was so discouraged because we had worked so hard and we had 
put in time and sweat and all of our own money and the money that we had earned and everything. And we were so close, so close. And we couldn't just get the carpet laid so we could open the doors and start meeting publicly. And I was, just, I was wiped out. I was so exhausted from all of the work and so disappointed. And that finally, everything was just, it just seemed like slammed in our faces. And, and I just, I got off the phone and I thought, well, I don't know what we're going to do now. Because I knew we didn't have the money. And on, our way, on my way home, I drove by, because we had a post office box at the time. I drove by the new post office, went to our post office box, got the mail. And I'm sitting in the car in the, in the parking lot of the post office. And I'm thumbing through the mail. And there's this one letter. And the postmark on it, or the, um, the return address on it, was North Carolina. Now, I don't know anybody in North Carolina. Now, well, that's interesting. So I opened up, and there was a letter inside. And the letter went like this. You don't know me, but a friend of mine, who was a friend of yours, was out visiting me this past week. And she was telling me about this new church that you're getting started. And I just sensed that God was laying it on my heart to send you this. And inside was a check for $1,000. Now, if you don't think that encouraged me, <laughs> I sat in the parking lot. In fact, it's, it's only like, 19 years later, that I can tell that story without crying, you know, because I just, I bawled my eyes out, you know. It was just like, oh, thank you, God, thank you, God. You know? One check, and I don't know, this lady didn't know me from Adam. She had no way. We could have been starting a cult for all she knew, you know. But she said, no strings attached. Here it is. This is yours. Do what you want with it. And there was something about when people get generous, when people give, and it doesn't have to be a lot. It doesn't have to be a huge amount. It's just this attitude of generosity when people share in that way and are generous with their resources it is encouraging all across the board Barnabas was the one guy who got his name recognized but he started a whole snowball of people with generous hearts that got that early first century church started and givers understand something about the kingdom of heaven they understand that all that I have here all that I earn here all that I Losing my 401k here is just temporary. It's all just temporary. But I have the chance to take something temporary and invest it in eternity. And generous people understand that. They understand this is, this is taking something temporary and making it eternal. It's what Paul wrote about when he wrote to the Corinthian church, another generous church who took up a collection to help the church in Jerusalem that was going through a really tough time. And he wrote them this letter. He, and he wrote to them, Your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because not only did you help somebody, but you got the satisfaction of knowing you made a difference. And on top of that, you reflect God's character. Because He is a giving, generous God. Sadly, we live in the richest nation in the world. At maybe as bad as the economy might be, at, at probably still the richest time in history. And yet, giving in the United States is pathetic. Some statistics... Giving statistics, just okay, just in U.S. evangelical churches, adults, statistically, four out of ten adult church attenders give nothing at all. Four out of, that's almost half, give nothing at all. And another two or three out of that ten give next to nothing. The average giving by adults 
in Protestant churches in the United States is $17 a week. That's pathetic. We are the richest people in the world. Now some of you, many of you here, know the blessing of generosity. You know the joy and satisfaction that comes from being generous and being a giver. And most of you don't have a lot, but you know, you know the joy of it. But the truth is all of us, me included, all of us could learn to do better. All of us could be just a little bit more generous and by that encourage people. All of us could grow in this area. Every one of us had potential in this area. And there's only one way to do it. Give. Because <laughs> there's something about generosity that encourages people all around. And it's one of the first things you find out about this guy named Barnabas. Second time you count him, because it kind of fades into the background for a couple of chapters. And then in chapter 9, towards the end of chapter 9, he resurfaces again. And what you find out is the second quality about an encourager. And the second quality of the heart of a champion is they are the type of people who look for potential in others. They are able to see in other people what nobody else can see, even maybe what you can't see yourself. But that's what encouragers do. They are able to see something in people that nobody else can see. And we all need those kind of people. We all need people who believe in us. Now, of course, you know in your friendships and in your relationships, not all of your friendships are like that. Not all of your relationships are like that. They're kind of a mix. You have those who are what you might call replenishers. Just being around them makes you feel better. They're encouraging. They're positive. They celebrate every good thing you do. You know, even if it's not that good, they still celebrate with you. They are replenishing people. And, and there's something about being around them. You go away encouraged no matter how down you might have been. And then you've got people in your life who are what you might call drainers. They just like suck the life out of you. You know, they are negative. Anything you do, it is never good enough. Whatever you have, they've got something better, you know. Whatever you've done, they're never impressed. You know, they never celebrate with you. Maybe you're one of those kind of people. I don't know. But we've all got them in our lives. Old story I heard a long time ago uh, about a guy. He, um, he had one of these kind of guys in his life. Good friend of his, actually. Um, it was his hunting buddy. But it seemed like no matter what he did, his friend always did something better. You know, and no matter what successes he had in life, his, his friend always would just kind of downplay it or say something negative about it. Just was never impressed, never appreciative, never, never encouraging at all. And they were hunting buddies. And, and one day, um, this guy, he got a new hunting dog. And this was like the best hunting dog ever. Beautiful dog. And just this dog could point and hold the point longer than any dog in history. I mean, it was, just, it was like the best hunting dog ever, and, and he showed him to his friend, and his friend wasn't all that impressed, but they went out hunting together, and they're hunting duck hunting, and, um, and he actually shoots a duck, and the duck falls in the middle of the pond, and this dog actually walked on water, <laughs> walked on water all the way out to the duck, grabbed the duck, retrieved it, and walked on water all the way back, and looked at his friend, and said, now isn't that impressive, and his friend looked at him and said, your dog can't swim, can he? you got those kind of people in your life. <laughs> then no matter what you do, it seems like they're just, you know, they're not with you. But fortunately, you've got people who are in your cheering check, check section. They're the people who, who support you and encourage you no matter how things go bad. Barnabas was one of those guys. He was a replenisher. He saw potential that nobody else could see. In Acts chapter 9, 
there is a record of the conversion of a man named Saul. If you're not familiar with the story, Saul was, he was like leading the charge to destroy the church, okay? He didn't like what was going on. He didn't like all these people converting to Christianity. He didn't like all these people putting their faith in Jesus. And so he was doing everything he could to destroy it. You know, he was arresting people. He was putting them on trial. He was making sure they got killed. He actually got letters to be able to go all the way to a place called Damascus to arrest people there and bring them back to Jerusalem for prosecution. And while he was on his way to Damascus, he got struck down right off his high horse by God and just blinded by a bright light. And God said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> he said, I am, I am Jesus Christ. And, and on that road, Saul's life was changed. And he was brought by his entourage. They got him to, to Damascus. And a guy named Ananias went and, and shared with him more in depth. And he, and he gave his life to Christ. And then after time, he wanted to go back to Jerusalem because that's where he was from. And he was going back to Jerusalem and wanted to kind of get into the church back there. But see, the last time these guys had seen him, he was on his way out of town with arrest warrants. You know, all they'd ever seen of this guy was, you know, he, he, he's out to get us. And so he comes back to Jerusalem and none of them want anything to do with him. They don't want to touch him with a 10-foot pole. You know, they're just, they, they want nothing to do with him. And it says in Acts 9 that when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They thought he was just trying to infiltrate. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas saw something nobody else could see. And he took a risk. He believed that God could change a life, no matter how unchangeable somebody might think. He believed God could change a life. And so he took the risk, and he went out, and he met Paul. And we're not given a lot of details, but he probably got to know him and heard his story. And then what he did, the most important thing, he brought him with him back to the church, to the disciples. And because Barnabas stood by him, they trusted Barnabas. So they accepted Saul, who later became, his name was changed to Paul, and became the writer of most of the New Testament. Because one guy saw in him something nobody else would see. He took the risk. And that's the deal. People come to Christ through other people. That's how it happens. Every faith story can be traced back to a relationship. Somebody cared. Somebody invested in life. Somebody made an invitation. We have baptisms around here regularly. And every time people get baptized, they tell their story. And without exception, every time they tell a story, there is somebody who invited them. There is somebody who shared life. It could be traced back to one person or two people who invested their lives, who saw in them the possibility to change that nobody else saw. And that's the way that God works. He works through people who can look for and believe in and bring out the best in other people. And as the persecution continued, because persecution continued on the church, because Saul's conversion was one, but there were still others that were out to get him, the church scattered out of Jerusalem. They went out into the surrounding areas, and even in distant areas. And a little bit later, when we get to chapter 11, there's a group now that have moved all the way to Antioch, which is kind of, it's in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, modern-day Turkey, Greece area, okay? And, and there's a group that go there, and, and a church sprouts up. And more and more people start putting their faith in Jesus, and the church continues to grow. And the church back in Jerusalem hear about this. And it's like, well, man, we need to send somebody up there to help them and, and teach them and, and encourage them. Well, who should we send? Barnabas. He's from that area. Cyprus, that's right nearby. 
He can speak their language. And we all know how good he is at encouraging. So they send Barnabas. And that's what, says, that's what it says in Acts 11. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Where he, and when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. He celebrated. And he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. It's the kind of guy he was. When he saw evidence of faith, he just encouraged it and brought it along. And the church continued to grow. In fact, it grew beyond the point that he could do this all by himself. And so like a, a couple years later, it says he needed help. And what he did was, who should I get to help me? I know somebody who knows an awful lot about the Old Testament. I know an awful, He knows so much about Scripture. He would be great. He would be perfect for this. And it says he went out and found Tarsus. He went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This guy that, because now he had left Jerusalem and gone back to his hometown. He kind of, he fades from, from the picture. But Barnabas goes and gets him. You would be perfect for this. I need your help. Come, share with me. And it says that they got together. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it says the church continues to grow. In fact, it says that they were first called Christians. The believers were first called Christians in Antioch. People looked at this church and said, those are people that are like Christ. When they say they are Christ followers, they really are Christ followers. And it was because of a guy named Barnabas who was willing to share ministry with a guy named Saul. Let me ask you this morning, what kind of friendships do you offer? What kind of relationships do you offer the people around you? Who in your life could use some encouragement? Who in your life that you look at and say, they will never, never become a believer? (laughs) But if you went and invited them, if you would bring them, if you could encourage them, if you could invest in their life, if you would just reach out and touch life, even as awkward as it might feel or uncomfortable as it might make you, but you invest in a life, you make a difference. Because it always goes back to relationships. And that's why, by the way, we, we put a great deal of emphasis in our community groups because it's in a community group that you learn to build those kind of relationships. It's in a smaller confined group of people that you develop those kind of friendships and you learn how to encourage each other. And if you're not in a community group, I encourage you, you need to get into one. So his generosity and then his, his acceptance of other people, incredibly th- important. But there's a third thing. You next find out about um, Barnabas and it comes to Acts chapter 13. And here's the thing you find out about him. As an encourager, he's willing to take a back seat. He's willing to take a secondary role. It says in, in, in chapter 11 that for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught, and great, taught great numbers of people. The church just continued to grow. They had a good thing going. They were an incredibly powerful team. And, and if you read the New Testament, you kind of, they have very different personalities. But they made a great team. And the church continued to grow. And as it grew, um, that church began to send out people to start other churches And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one of the elders of the church said, this is what God's saying. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to do the work which I have called them. And the church gathers together and they encourage them and they say, we're sending you out. We're going to support you. You go. You go and share this message of grace with everybody else you can find. And they become the very first missionaries. They go out beyond their own comfort zone. And something very interesting happens because as you read through Acts 11, 12, 13. It's always Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And then something happens as they come back at the end of this journey. In Acts 14, it says, now Paul and Barnabas. Very subtle change. 
Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committing them, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Something happened on that journey that something switched. Instead of Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. How many are familiar with the term shotgun? Yeah, you know that one, okay? Like when you got your driver's license, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you go in the car and somebody's yelling, shotgun! Because nobody wants to sit in the back seat. If I can't drive, I at least want to sit shotgun. You know, I want to I sit in the front seat. Nobody wants to sit in the back seat. Barnabas is a back seat kind of guy. He doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter who gets the credit. What he cares about is that the kingdom is expanding and people are coming to faith. And it doesn't matter if it's through me or if it's through Paul. It doesn't really matter. Now, humanly speaking, that's a really bad career decision. Okay? That's like Steve Jobs when he invited John Scully to come on board at Apple and then got ousted because of it, you know? That's, that's kind of what happens. He fades into the background. Humanly speaking, that's not what we would do. But here's the thing. He doesn't care. What matters to him is that people are coming to faith and the church of God is growing and people are taking new steps of faith. And it's amazing what can take place when we don't care who gets the credit. I'll be honest with you. One of the hardest things in the world for me, because when you're a leader, it's really tough to take a second, back, second seat, okay? One of the hardest things for me to do is to say I'm one of the pastors at Northgate Fellowship. Because you see, I'm the senior pastor. <laughs> I'm the lead pastor at North. You know, people call and say, well, are you the pastor? And I want to say, I'm the senior pastor. But there's, I know it, and I just, I, I sometimes have to grit my teeth, personal confession. I say, well, I'm one of them. I feel so good about myself. No, no, but I really wanted to say. <laughs> it's tough to take a back seat. But it's amazing what God can do when you don't care who gets the credit. And that's the thing with Barnabas. He's willing to take a secondary role. And that is a sign of an encourager. And then the last one, and it comes up a little bit later in Acts chapter 12, 13. What you find in Barnabas is he's a guy who will stand with you even when you fail. Even when you fail. That's an encourager. That's a champion. A champion is someone who never gives up on you. And Barnabas was one of those kind of guys. As you read through, he was always including people in ministry. Every time they went out on a trip, they would, they would recruit some other people to go with them. And one of them they recruited on the very first trip was a guy named Mark. John called Mark. And in Acts 12, we're told, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, Scholars believe that actually there's a, there's a tie-in there that Mark was actually a cousin of Barnabas. We don't know that for sure, but it's a pretty good indicator. Um, and there's elsewhere in Scripture where it alludes to that idea. So, but for whatever reason, he wants him to get in on this. And so he invites him along on the trip, and everything goes well. But he's kind of a young guy. And for some reason, as they go through this trip, they get to a place called Pamphylia. And in Acts 13, it says, from Paphos, from Paphos, Paul and his companions, Barnabas doesn't even get mentioned now, by the way. Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. No reasons given. No explanation. Might have been a good reason. Maybe not. All we know is, in the middle of the trip, he abandons them. Had enough going home, for whatever reason. Just up and left. 
And that's not a really big deal, except that whole thing resurfaces a little bit later. Because when they're going to go out on the second missionary trip, Barnabas wants to take John Mark along with him. Ask him a second chance. And Paul wants nothing to do with it. Acts 15. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. And it says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. This great ministry team. But they were so, so at odds over this whole thing about taking John Mark, giving him a second chance. And you can imagine what that conversation must have gone like. Because here's Barnabas talking to Paul, who nobody wanted anything to do with before, who nobody else would give a second chance. And you can almost hear Barnabas saying, hey, Paul, I went to bat for you when nobody else would. And look how that turned out. You know, come on, give, you, know, you can return the favor. But for some reason, Paul wants nothing to do with it. Barnabas says, give him a second chance. Come on, I, let's give him. He was young then. Let's give him a second chance. Paul says, no way. I'm not spending time with the loser. I'm not spending time with the deserter. If he's not sold out 100%, forget him. I got no time for him. And it was such a sharp disagreement that they actually split up. They actually parted company. And what's interesting is, as you read the account, there's no judgment made about who was right or who was wrong. <laughs> it doesn't say Paul was right and so he went on and succeeded and, or Barnabas was right and he went on and succeeded. We never know. It's just kind of left there for us to take in and wrestle with. But what we do know is that Paul then took on another partner named Silas and continued to go out and was very, very successful in ministry and planted churches all around the Mediterranean. Ended up in Rome. Had an incredibly successful ministry. And Barnabas just kind of fades to the background. Except, except that at one of Paul's last letters to another young guy named Timothy, he writes these words, Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Years later, Paul says, this guy's worth the effort. It's worth the second chance. I'll tell you one more story. Very early in my ministry. Um, it's actually the second church that I ever served in. Extremely difficult situation. I probably made some mistakes. I'm willing to admit that. But the long and short of it was that after a year, only a year of ministry in that church, they said for financial reasons, I don't know, but they could no longer have an associate pastor. I was not the senior pastor. I was not the lead pastor. So I was the guy that was cut. I had no job. I had no other church interested in me. I had not been talking to any other churches. I had nowhere else to go. I didn't have the internet to be able to go on and find another church to go serve at. All I could, I called my dad. He's a building contractor. I called him. I said, I don't have a job. You got any work? <laughs> he said, well, actually, I just signed a contract. It's a pretty big one. I could probably use your help. So we moved back to the Bay Area, and I went to work pounding nails as a carpenter. And I, I, I was so discouraged and so defeated. I felt like a failure. I was angry at God. I, I was just like, God, if this is the way you treat the people that want to serve you and follow you, you can have it. I don't want to do this anymore. I'll just be a carpenter. I'll just pound nails. That's okay with me. Better money anyway. <laughs> but there was a pastor at my home church, because that's where we went back to church, church I'd grown up in. And the pastor there, his name is Dave Markham, didn't give up on me. And he met with me and let me kind of work through the pain and the hurt. And he gave me opportunities to 
preach a little bit and teach a little bit. And then eventually took me on as a part-time staff member. Eventually became a full-time staff member. Eventually became the church that sent us out to plant this church. It's all because of one guy. At a very low point in my own life and ministry, wouldn't give up on me. You have no idea the difference you make in somebody's life. You have no idea what a word of encouragement, what an act of generosity, with a willingness to stand even when somebody fails, what that could do. And because of a guy named Barnabas, it led to the conversion and strengthening of a new believer named Saul who became Paul, who became the author of most of the New Testament that we have today. And this John Mark character, he is actually the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And now you know the rest of the story. (laughs) Because somebody wouldn't give up. And I believe that's the kind of church God wants. I believe that's the kind of people he wants us to be. People who are known for generosity and acceptance and we're willing to promote and affirm the success of other people. And we're willing to stand with each other even when we stumble and fall. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California. 